Section 18 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 18. 1753, Etat 44. He entered upon this year, 1753, with his usual piety, as appears from the following prayer, which I transcribed from that part of his diary which he burnt a few days before his death. January 1, 1753, N.S., which I shall use for the future. Almighty God, who has continued my life to this day, grant that by the assistance of thy Holy Spirit I may improve the time which thou shalt grant me, to my eternal salvation. Make me to remember, to thy glory, thy judgments, and thy mercies. Make me so to consider the loss of my wife, whom thou hast taken from me, that it may depose me, by the grace, to lead the residue of my life in thy fear. Grant this, O Lord, for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. He now relieved the drudgery of his dictionary, and the melancholy of his grief, by taking an active part in the composition of the adventurer, in which he began to write April 10, marking his collections with the signature T, by which most of his papers in that collection are distinguished. Those, however, which have that signature, and also that of Miss Sargeris, were not written by him, but, as I supposed, by Dr. Bathurst. Indeed, Johnston's energy of thought and richness of language are still more decisive marks than any signature. As proof of this, my readers, I imagine, will not doubt that number 39, on sleep, is his, for it not only has the general texture and color of his style, but the authors with whom he has peculiarly conversant are readily introduced in it in cursory allusion. The translation of a passage in Statius, quoted in that paper, and marked C.B., has been erroneously ascribed to Dr. Bathurst, whose Christian name was Richard. How much this amiable man actually contributed to the adventurer cannot be known. Let me add that Hawksworth's imitations of Johnson are sometimes so happy that it is extremely difficult to distinguish them, with certainty, from the compositions of his great archetype. Hawksworth was his closest imitator, a circumstance of which that writer would once have been proud to be told, though when he had become elated by having risen into some degree of consequence, he, in a conversation with me, had the provoking effrontery to say that he was not sensible of it. Johnson was truly zealous for the success of the adventurer, and very soon after his engraving in it, he wrote the following letter. To the Reverend Dr. Joseph Wharton. Dear Sir, I ought to have written you before now, but I ought to do many things which I do not, nor can I, indeed, claim any merit from this letter, for being desirous by the authors and proprietor of the adventurer to look out for another hand, my thoughts necessarily fixed upon you whose fund of literature will enable you to assist them, with very little interruption of your studies. They desire you to engage to furnish one paper a month, at two guineas a paper, which you may very readily perform. We have considered that a paper should consist of pieces of imagination, pictures of life, and disquisitions of literature. The part which depends on the imagination is very well supplied, as you will find when you read the paper. For descriptions of life there is now a treaty almost made with an author and an authoress, 
and the province of criticism and literature they are very desirous to assign to the commentator on Virgil. I hope this proposal will not be rejected, and that the next post will bring us your compliance. I speak as one of the fraternity, though I have no part in the paper, beyond now and then a motto. But two of the writers are my particular friends, and I hope the pleasure of seeing a third united to them will not be denied to, dear sir, your most obedient and most humble servant, Sam Johnson. March 8, 1753. The consequence of this letter was Dr. Wharton's enriching the collection with several admirable essays. Johnson's saying, I have no part in the paper beyond now and then a motto, may seem inconsistent with his being the author of the paper's marked T. But he had at this time written only one number, and besides, even at any other after-period, he may have used the same expression, considering it as a point of honour not to own them, for Mrs. Williams told me that, as he had given those essays to Dr. Bathurst, who sold them at two guineas each, he never would own them. Nay, he used to say, he did not write them, but the fact was that he dictated them while Bathurst wrote. I read to him Mrs. Williams' account. He smiled and said nothing. I am not quite satisfied with the casuistry by which the productions of one person are thus passed upon the world for the productions of another. I allow that not only knowledge, but powers and qualities of mind may be communicated, but the actual effect of individual exertion never can be transferred, with truth, to any other than its own original cause. One person's child may be made the child of another person by adoption, as among the Romans, or by the ancient Jewish mode of a wife having children born to her upon her knees by her handmaid. But these were children in a different sense from that of nature. It was clearly understood that they were not of the blood of their nominal parents. So in literary children an author may give the profits and fame of his composition to another man, but cannot make that other man the real author. A highland gentleman, a younger branch of a family, once consulted me if he could not validly purchase the chieftainship of his family from the chief who was willing to sell it. I told him it was impossible for him to acquire, by purchase, a right to be a different person from that what he really was, for that the right of chieftainship attached to the blood of primogeniture, and therefore was incapable of being transferred. I added, that though Esau sold his birthright, or the advantages belonging to it, he still remained the firstborn of his parents, and that whatever agreement a chief might make with any of the clan, the herald's office could not admit of the metamorphosis, or with any decency attest that the younger was the elder. But I did not convince the worthy gentleman. Johnson's papers in The Adventurer are very similar to those of The Rambler, but being rather more varied in their subjects, and being mixed with essays by other writers upon topics more generally attractive than even the most elegant ethical discourses, the sale of the work at first was more extensive. Without meaning, however, to deprecate the adventurer, I must observe that as a value of the rambler came, in the progress of time, to be better known, it grew upon the public estimation, and that its sale has far exceeded that of any other periodical papers since the reign of Queen Anne. In one of the books of his diary I find the following entry. April 3, 1753. I began the second volume of my dictionary, room being left in the first for preface, grammar, and history, none of them yet begun. 
O God, who hast hitherto supported me, enable me to proceed in this labor, and in the whole task of my present state, that when I shall render up, at the last day, an account of the talent committed to me, I may receive pardon, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. He this year favored Mrs. Lennox with a dedication to the Earl of Orrery, of her Shakespeare Illustrated. 1754. At 45. In 1754 I can trace nothing published by him, except his numbers of The Adventurer and The Life of Edward Cave, in the Gentleman's Magazine for February. In biography there can be no question that he excelled, beyond all who have attempted that species of composition, upon which, indeed, he set the highest value. To the minute selection of characteristical circumstances, for which the ancients were remarkable, he added a philosophical research and the most perspicuous and energetic language. Cave was certainly a man of estimable qualities, and was eminently diligent and successful in his own business, which doubtless entitled him to respect. But he was particularly fortunate in being recorded by Johnson, who, of the narrow life of a printer and publisher, without any digressions or adventurous circumstances, has made an interesting and agreeable narrative. The dictionary, we may believe, afforded Johnson full occupation this year. As it approached to its conclusion, he probably worked with redoubled vigor, as seamen increase their exertion and alacrity when they have a near prospect of their haven. Lord Chesterton, to whom Johnson had paid the highest compliment of addressing to his lordship the plan of his dictionary, had behaved to him in such a manner as to excite his contempt and indignation. The world has been, for many years, amused with a story confidently told, and as confidently repeated with additional circumstances, that a sudden disgust was taken by Johnson upon occasion of his having been, one day, kept long in waiting at his lordship's antechamber, for which the reason assigned was, that he had company with him, and that at last, when the door opened, out walked Collie Gibber and that Johnson was so violently provoked when he found out for whom he had been so long excluded, that he went away in a passion, and never would return. I remember having mentioned this story to George Lord Littleton, who told me he was very intimate with Lord Chesterfield, and holding it as a well-known truth, defended Lord Chesterfield by saying that Gibber, who had been introduced familiarly by the back stairs, had probably not been there above ten minutes. It may seem strange even to entertain a doubt concerning a story so long and so widely current, and thus implicitly adopted, if not sanctioned, by the authority which I have mentioned. But Johnson himself assured me that there was not the least foundation for it. He told me that there never was any particular incident which produced a quarrel between Lord Chesterfield and him, but that his lordship's continued neglect was the reason why he resolved to have no connection with him. When the dictionary was upon the eve of publication, Lord Chesterfield, who, it is said, had flattered himself with expectations that Johnson would dedicate the work to him, attempted in a courtly manner to soothe and insinuate himself with the sage, conscious, as it should seem, of the cold indifference with which he had treated its learned author, and further attempted to conciliate him by writing two papers in The World in recommendation of the work and it must be confessed that they contained some studied compliments, so finely tuned, that if there had been no previous offence, 
it is probable that Johnson would have been highly delighted. Praise, in general, was pleasing to him, but by praise from a man of rank and elegant accomplishment, he was peculiarly gratified. His lordship says, I think the public in general, and the republic of letters in particular, are greatly obliged to Mr. Johnson for having undertaken and executed so great and desirable a work. Perfection is not to be expected from man, but if we are to judge by the various works of Johnson already published, we have good reason to believe that he will bring this as near to perfection as any man could do. The plan of it, which he published some years ago, seems to me to be proof of it. Nothing can be more rationally imagined, or more accurately and elegantly expressed. I therefore recommend the previous perusal of it to all those who intend to buy the dictionary, and who, I suppose, are all those who can afford it. It must be owned that our language is, at present, in a state of anarchy, and hitherto, perhaps, it may not have been the worse for it. During our free and open trade, many words and expressions have been imported, adopted, and naturalized from other languages, which have greatly enriched our own. Let it still preserve what real strength and beauty it may have borrowed from others, but let it not, like the Tarpeian maid, be overwhelmed and crushed by unnecessary ornaments. The time for discrimination seems now to come. Toleration, adoption, and naturalization have run their lengths. Good order and authority are now necessary. But where shall we find them, and, at the same time, the obedience due to them? We must have recourse to the old Roman expedient in times of confusion, and choose a dictator. Upon this principle I give my vote for Mr. Johnson to fill that great and arduous post. And I hereby declare that I make a total surrender of all my rights and privileges in the English language, as a free-born British subject, to the said Mr. Johnson, during the term of his dictatorship. Nay more, I will not only obey him, like an old Roman, as my dictator, but, like a modern Roman, I will implicitly believe in him as my Pope, and hold him to be infallible while in the chair, but no longer. More than this he cannot well require, for I presume that obedience can never be expected, when there is neither terror to enforce, nor interest to invite it. But a grammar, a dictionary, and a history of our language, through its several stages, were still wanting at home, and importunately called for from abroad. Mr. Johnson's labors will now, I dare say, very fully supply that want, and greatly contribute to the farther spreading of our language in other countries. Learners were discouraged by finding no standard to resort to, and consequently thought it incapable of any they will now be undeceived and encouraged. This courtly device failed of its effect. Johnson, who thought that all was false and hollow, despised honeyed words, and was even indignant that Lord Chesterfield should, for a moment, imagine that he could be the dupe of such an artifice. His expression to me concerning Lord Chesterfield upon this occasion was, Sir, after making great professions, he had for many years taken no notice of me, but when my dictionary was coming out, he fell a scribbling in the world about it. Upon which I wrote him a letter expressed in civil terms, but such as might show him that I did not mind what he said or wrote, and that I had done with him. This is that celebrated letter of which so much has been said, and about which my curiosity has been so long excited without being gratified. 
I, for many years, solicited Johnson to favour me with a copy of it, that so excellent a composition might not be lost to posterity. He delayed from time to time to give it to me, till at last, in 1781, when we were on a visit at Mr. Dilly's at South Hill in Bedfordshire, he was pleased to dictate it to me from memory. He afterwards found among his papers a copy of it, which he had dictated to Mr. Beretti, with its title and corrections in its own handwriting. This he gave to Mr. Langton, adding that if it were to come into print, he wished it to be from that copy. By Mr. Langton's kindness, I am enabled to enrich my work with a perfect transcript of what the world has so eagerly desired to see. To the Right Honourable the Earl of Chesterfield. February 7, 1755. My Lord. I have been lately informed by the proprietor of the world that two papers, in which my dictionary is recommended to the public, were written by your lordship. To be so distinguished is an honour, which, being very little accustomed to favours from the great, I know not well how to receive, or in what terms to acknowledge. When, upon some slight encouragement, I first visited your lordship, I was overpowered, like the rest of mankind, by the enchantment of your address and could not forbear to wish that I might boast myself le vainqueur de vainqueur de la terre, that I might obtain that regard for which I saw the world contending. But I found my attendance so little encouraged that neither pride nor modesty would suffer me to continue it. When I had once addressed your lordship in public, I had exhausted all the art of pleasing which a retired and uncourtly scholar can possess. I had done all that I could, and no man is well pleased to have his all neglected, be it ever so little. Seven years, my lord, have now passed, since I waited in your outward rooms, or was repulsed from your door, during which time I have been pushing on my work through difficulties, of which it is useless to complain, and have brought it at last to the verge of publication, without one act of assistance, one word of encouragement, or one smile of favour. Such treatment I did not expect, for I never had a patron before. The shepherd in Virgil grew at last acquainted with love, and found him a native of the rocks. Is not a patron, my lord, one who looks with unconcern on a man struggling for life in the water, and, when he has reached ground, encumbers him with help? The notice which you have been pleased to take of my labours, had it been early, had been kind, but it has been delayed till I am indifferent, and cannot enjoy it, till I am solitary, and cannot impart it, till I am known, and do not want it. I hope it is no very cynical asperity not to confess obligations where no benefit has been received, or to be unwilling that the public should consider me as owing that to a patron which Providence has enabled me to do for myself. Having carried on my work thus far with so little obligation to any favourer of learning, I shall not be disappointed, though I should conclude it, if less be possible with less, for I have been long wakened from that dream of hope, in which I once boasted myself with so much exultation. My Lord, your Lordship's most humble, most obedient servant, Sam Johnson. While this was the talk of the town, says Dr. Adams, in a letter to me, I happened to visit Dr. Warburton, who, finding that I was acquainted with Johnson, desired me earnestly to carry his compliments to him, and to tell him that he honoured him for his manly behaviour in rejecting these condescensions of Lord Chesterfield, and for resenting the treatment he had received from him with a proper spirit. 
Johnson was visibly pleased with this compliment, for he had always a high opinion of Warburton. Indeed, the force of mind which appeared in this letter was congenial with that which Warburton himself amply possessed. There is a curious, minute circumstance which struck me in comparing the various editions of Johnson's imitations of Juvenal. In the tenth satire, one of the couplets upon the vanity of wishes, even for literary distinction, stood thus. Yet think what ills the scholar's life assail, pride, envy, want, the garret, and the jail. But after experiencing the uneasiness which Lord Chesterfield's fallacious patronage made him feel, he dismissed the word garret from the sad group, and in all the subsequent edition the line stands, Pride, envy, want, the patron, and the jail. That Lord Chesterfield must have been mortified by the lofty contempt, and polite yet keen satire with which Johnson exhibited him to himself in this letter, it is impossible to doubt. He, however, with that glossy duplicity which was his constant study, affected to be quite unconcerned. Dr. Adams mentioned to Mr. Robert Dodsley that he was sorry Johnson had written his letter to Lord Chesterfield. Dodsley, with the true feelings of trade, said he was very sorry, too, for that he had a property in the dictionary, to which his lordship's patronage might have been consequence. He then told Dr. Adams that Lord Chesterfield had shown him the letter. I should have imagined, replied Dr. Adams, that Lord Chesterfield would have concealed it. Poe, said Dodsley, do you think a letter from Johnson could hurt Lord Chesterfield? Not at all, sir. It lay upon his table, where anybody might see it. He read it to me, said, This man has great powers, pointed out the severest passages, and observed how well they were expressed. This air of indifference, which imposed upon the worthy Dodsley, was certainly nothing but a specimen of that dissimulation which Lord Chesterfield inculcated as one of the most essential lessons for the conduct of life. His lordship endeavoured to justify himself to Dodsley from the charges brought against him by Johnson, but we may judge the flimsiness of his defence, from his having excused his neglect of Johnson, by saying that he had heard he had changed his lodgings, and did not know where he lived, as if there could have been the smallest difficulty in to inform himself of that circumstance, by inquiring in the literary circle, with which his lordship was well acquainted, and was indeed himself one of its ornaments. End of section 18